Turn your Bibles to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. The children can be dismissed at this time. They'll go back to Children's Church. I'm grateful for the evens teaching them. Well, we go to John chapter 21. We've been looking at suppers with Jesus, as you know, and uh, the supper we look at this morning is actually a breakfast. So we'll work that out, okay? A meal's a meal, amen? And a lot of times we have breakfast for supper. Today we'll have supper at breakfast. Uh, we'll see how that works out. But uh, it's, in, it's interesting as we've looked at the customs of the day uh, through the life of Jesus and the times of Jesus, a meal with someone was a big deal. In fact, if you remember when Jesus ate with Matthew and a whole table full of sinners and publicans, uh, the Pharisees got all upset that he would dare eat with somebody who was beneath him or, or sinners, as they called it. Because eating with someone, it's a big deal. Uh, eating with someone is a form of intimacy. It's, a, it's how you spend time with people, and it means that you want to spend time with somebody else. Have you ever asked somebody to a meal, and, and uh, they say, well, how about coffee? probably means they don't want to spend that much time with you or, or uh, extended time. But because a meal means we really want to, you know, that's what we do on our on dates. And that's what we do to on date night, even after we're married. And, and uh, because that is a special time. Now, in that day, though, it meant even more, as probably it would in this day, that if somebody has wronged you, for you to invite them to a meal would be a gesture of forgiveness. I think we could apply that today. Somebody does you wrong and then you invite them to a meal. That is a, a peace sign, in other words, or it's, a, uh, it's an extension of, of uh, a desire to be restored. And here's Jesus wanting to have a meal. He serves a meal to Peter specifically and the others as well. After the, this is after the resurrection. And he serves a meal to all those who had failed him and forsook him. And in Peter's case, even denied him. The supper we look at this morning will teach us much about ourselves. And I hope you come today with an open heart to what the Scripture has to tell you because I promise you, not because of what I have to offer, but because what this fabulous chapter has to give us. If you listen with an open heart, God can change your life this morning. There's so much for us to learn from this passage. Let's start reading in verse number 3. Simon Peter said unto them, I go a-fishing. They say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. And Jesus said unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. And he saith unto them, Cast the net on the, other si or the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved said unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. And the other disciple came into a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fishes. As soon as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and a fish laid thereon in bread. And, and fish, not a fish, but that fish laid down there on a bread. Jesus said to them, bring of the fish which ye have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net land unto the land full of great fishes, a hundred and fifty and three. For all there were so many, yet was the net not broken. Jesus said unto them, come and dine. None of the disciples durst ask him, who art thou, knowing it was the Lord? 
Jesus then cometh and break, taketh bread and giveth them and fish white likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to disciples after that he was risen from the dead. So when they had dined, Jesus saith unto Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto them, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He said unto him, Feed my lambs. We'll read a few more verses as we go through, but let's have a word of prayer and ask God to be with us today as we look at suppers with Jesus today with Peter. Father, we thank you for each and every one that's here. May we pay clo close attention now to what your word has to say. Help us to apply it to our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Throughout the Gospels, there are many examples that talk about Jesus and show us things from the word that prove to us that the Bible cannot be, as many people call it, myths or fables. It's not a book of, of just stories. Uh, here's a quick example that we see in this passage. It says, when they brought in the fish, there were 153 of them. <coughs> so this kind of strikes me funny. Jesus has been crucified. Now he is risen. They've just witnessed a miracle. And there, uh, now Jesus is there in the midst with them, and someone took the time to count the fish. One, two, three. I'll be with you in a minute, Jesus. Four, five, six. Somebody counted them, and they recorded that there was 153. Why would they write just this random 153? Many people would say, well, because it's a fable. It's meant to be Symbolic. Symbolic. 153. Uh, try as you might, you cannot find any symbolism in that number. In 1, 5, 10, 100, 7, there's symbolic uh, attributes in those numbers, but you just can't find anything in 153. And then some might say, well, it was there, it was put there to seem realistic. The problem with that theory comes when you study literature, because in modern fiction, they do that. They throw all, all kinds of minute details to add reality to it, but that is only a practice that has been uh, done in the last few hundred years. Before that, this was not part of writing fiction. The truth of the matter is, I believe, it's because this is exactly what actually happened this is an eyewitness testimony. It means that they were there, and, and it's interesting that John, at the end of his book, actually in this, in this chapter here, verse 25, there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they would be written, everyone, I suppose even the world itself could not contain the books. And yet, he said, there's a lot of things Jesus did I can't write, and yet he included details like this. That's a blessing to me. I think it's important, and I love that it's there. Another thing I want to point out, uh, these are these are some extra free things you're getting today, and we won't even charge you extra, amen? There's another thing I'd like to show you that's interesting here before we get into the meat of the message, uh, that when Jesus, when they came to the shore, they had this great catch, they came to the shore, the Bible says that Jesus was there, there was already fish sitting there on the coals, they were cooking, he had bread there, and then he tells the disciples, bring of the catch that you've just caught, and add it to what I have here. I, I think that's an interesting detail. Uh, because did Jesus need to do that? No, not at all. Uh, did he have enough fish, or could he have enough fish to feed them? Absolutely. He's just proven that. He's got no problem catching fish. And so he could have had plenty there, but he says, you bring what you've caught and add it to what I have here. And here's the principle that I want you to get. God does not need our help but he loves our involvement. That's a great principle in Scripture. Could he have fed the 5,000 on his own? 
Absolutely. He didn't need any help, but he used a little boy, and he used that little boy's lunch, and he multiplied it, and he fed all those people. Friend, God can use what little you have, your abilities or your talent, what little you have, if you give it to him, he can do great things. He does not need your help, but he loves your involvement. There are some things I want to unpack from this text, and as we look at what we've read in a few more verses, I want to look at three different things, how God can, uh, how we can be reconciled uh, to each other, how we can be reconciled to ourselves, and then how we can be reconciled to God. So let's look at those three things this morning. Look at verse number four. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. We see in verse 2 who was there. It was Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, John, and two others. Uh, Peter said, I go a-fishing. And they all said, we're going to go with you. And so they had fished all night, and they hadn't caught anything. They did not notice the person at first that was watching them from the shore. The Bible doesn't mention this or tell us, but I wonder if Jesus wasn't out there all night watching them, watching their futile efforts, seeing them try to do it on their own and they are unable to do so. You see, sometimes God has to, uh, before he can step in and help us, he has to watch us come to the end of ourselves. Because as long as we depend on our own abilities, he can't help us. So now he speaks out over the water. And he says, according to the Bible here, children, have you any meat? Now, the word children here is paideon in the original language. It's a word used of a young child. In terms of the law, it refers to a son or a daughter. In terms of age, it refers to a boy or a girl. In terms of position, it refers to a servant. The best terminology that we could put to it with our modern-day vernacular is something along the lines of, Hey, boys, have you any meat? And it's a normal question, isn't it? Whenever you see someone fishing, uh, it's a natural question for us to ask, you catch anything? And, uh, And of course, people are usually willing to share. They said no, and Jesus says, cast the net on the right side of the ship, and you shall find. They did so, and there were so many fish, they could not uh, pull it up. They had been fishing all night, and now they had this miracle. Uh, This has happened before, if you remember, in Luke chapter 5. The very first time, that was the day that Jesus asked Peter to follow him. And uh, Peter, they had been fishing all night then too. And Jesus said, launch out into the deep for a draught in uh, Luke chapter 5. And that time they got so many, the net broke. These two miracles, it's interesting, sort of bookend uh, Peter's life and Peter's time with Jesus that he had. It was a miracle of fish before, in the beginning, and at the end. But let's look at who's in the boat here. Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, and uh, the sons of Zebedee. This is verse 2, which is James and John, and, the, and two of the other disciples. Now, I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret, but don't tell anybody, okay? This is just between us. Uh, I am feverishly and excitedly working towards a, a series that I'm, I'm looking to do next after this about, uh, and I'm not going to tell you exactly what it's called or anything, that's a, that's top's top secret, you know, but, uh, but, uh, it'll be on character studies of Jesus' close friends. And there's some fascinating things we can learn. I'm working on those now, but suffice it to say that these men are very different from one another. Nathaniel was a trusting person. He almost believed too easily. When he first meets Jesus, do you remember what Jesus told him? Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. 
And, and when Jesus says this, Nathanael is amazed and he realizes that this is supernatural knowledge. And so he says in John 1.49, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. Remember what Jesus said to him? Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, thou hast believed. He said, thou shalt see greater things than these. In other words, Jesus says to him, boy, you are easily impressed. I haven't even done any miracles yet. And you already believe. Thomas was the opposite. Thomas underbelieves. He can be a little hard-headed. Thomas, remember, he's the one that said, I'm not going to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead unless I see the prince in his hands and the prince in his feet and the sword in his side, the, the, the wound. I'm not going to believe until I see that. Now, Thomas certainly was much more nuanced than being a doubter. I think that is an unfair title for Thomas because we kind of look at one place in his life and then we tag a, uh, put a, a title on him for the rest of time. Aren't you glad that somebody didn't see you at your worst and then give you that title for the rest of your life and the rest of time? Uh, so I don't believe that's quite a fair thing for us to do to Thomas, but he certainly wasn't like Nathaniel. But they're in the boat together. They're, uh, Nathaniel's and Thomas's don't necessarily and ordinarily get along. In fact, you could say today that the blue states are filled with Thomases who think the red states are filled with Nathaniels, and uh, politically speaking. But here they are in the boat together. And then there's John and Peter. John is a rationalist. He's a thinker. John's the first one to crunch all the data. Do you remember when they raced to the tomb and, and John beat Peter? He always liked to point that out. And so uh, John gets to the tomb. They both look into the tomb. <coughs> and John's the one that sees the grave clothes, crunches the data, and realizes that Jesus is risen. Here he sees what Jesus has just done, and he's the one that whispers to Peter, it is the Lord. And then... Uh, he's the first one to realize it, but he doesn't do anything about it. Peter, as usual, uh, acts without thinking. He's the first one to jump into gear. He's the first one to do something about it. He jumps out of the boat before they're even to the shore, and he swims and wades to the shore. Now, Peter's and John's often don't get along. Peter's think that John's are cowards, all, always taking too much time. John's are the people that want to form a committee and discuss things to the ends of eons of time. Uh, in that way, I'm a little more like Peter's than I am like John's. You know what a committee, you know what a, you know what a camel is? Have you ever seen a camel? A camel is a horse put together by a committee. I'm not a big fan of committees. And so that's what John's do, though. And John's think Peter's are impetuous and hotheads. But here they are in the boat together. My point today is Jesus Christ brings people together across racial divides, temperamental divides, uh, across class divides, and every divide you can come up with, Jesus Christ will combine them and bring them together. He brings together people that otherwise would despise each other. This is the beauty of the local church. We get an opportunity to come here and hear the Bible taught and fellowship with other believers and grow in our faith, and I... It's so awesome, I can't believe we don't have a cover charge, Brother Corey. Amen? You can come here for free and see all those things. But I'm saying we can be reconciled to each other. And we also see that Jesus reconciles us to ourselves. <coughs> I talk about how he, uh, how he reconciles us to each other, but the truth is that's not always the case in the local church, is it? The local church often has divisions, conflicts among God's people, 
often the reason is that we're not reconciled to who we really are in ourselves. Listen carefully now. We're not reconciled to our own reality. There's a great verse in James chapter 4, verse 1. From whence cometh wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your own lust that war in your members? James says the fighting that happens on the outside comes from fighting that happens on the inside. And, and uh, you can't, if you cannot be transparent with yourself, if you cannot be honest with who and what you are, how can you have the right relationship with others? Without God's help, friends, truthfully, we live lives of illusion about who we are. We expend so much energy trying to prove to ourselves and others that we are something other than what we are because we do not like to admit our flaws. We dislike admitting our weaknesses. We can't admit our brokenness to others and sometimes even to ourselves. The result is we continue to lead broken lives. So what's the answer? We have to be honest with ourselves. We have to use the Bible as a mirror. Years ago, when our kids were little, my wife and I have never lived in the same state as either one of our parents. And so, obviously, when, when time came for holidays and such, we would travel to one of our families. And one was, uh, while we were in Michigan, one was 10 hours away, one was 8 hours away, and so we always had a lot of travel time. And, and when you have a van full of kids... Uh, you got to do something to keep them entertained. And so I remember one time we were driving, <coughs> my wife was driving this leg of the trip and I was in the back there with the kids and we were just playing with them and tussling around. And one of the things that I did is I had this big purple flower barrette, I think it's called, with a clip on the bottom. And I would put it in my hair. And of course the girls, oh, you can't do that. And they'd try to tear it off and, and I'd put it back in. What, what, I don't have it. You know the, the game you play with the kids. And so they would take it off and, and uh, put it away in that thing. So we, we were playing along this line, and we stopped for gas, and I got up out to pump gas, and I'm standing there beside the car, and you know how you are when you're traveling and you're stretching a little bit, and I, I look around, and uh, people are kind of looking at me funny. You know how, you know the double take when somebody, uh, and it's really awkward when you're on the receiving end of it because people do this, and then they look again at you. And I kept getting that, and I checked myself, I'm looking good, I don't see anything wrong with me, and so finished pumping gas, I went into the gas station, and the same thing happened. Everybody, if, if somebody would look at you, they'd kind of look at you again. And so I went to the bathroom, and I washed my face with cold water, because uh, you always, when you're traveling, you feel kind of grimy and, and gross, and so I washed my hands, I washed my face, and I stood up, and I saw in the mirror, big old giant purple flower on top of my hair. You know what a mirror does is it shows you what you are. It shows you what's wrong with you. It shows you what other people see, but you don't. The Bible in James chapter 1 calls itself a mirror. And what the Bible does if we read and study the Word of God, the Bible shows us what we are. Now, uh, Jesus can change, listen very carefully here, don't miss this such a great truth. Jesus can change the mistaken view that we have of ourselves, and Peter is an excellent case study of this exact fact that I want to look at this morning. Let's take a step back. It was at the end of Jesus' life. In fact, we're going to talk about this supper next week, the Last Supper. And it was at the end of his life, and, and Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he uh, tells Peter 
that they are going to, well, he tells all of them that every one of them are going to let Jesus down. They're all going to fail Jesus, every one of them. And Peter's uh, betrayal of Jesus was especially heinous because uh, several reasons. First of all, Peter was in the inner circle. Along the, the three inner intimate friends of Jesus, Peter, James, and John, he was in that inner circle of all people. He should have stayed faithful, but uh, uh, Jesus would have given him the most input in his life. And another reason, Peter was really out of touch with his own reality of who he was. He was unable to be honest with himself. Out of all of them, Peter was the one, he was the only one who insisted, Lord, if you die, I'll die with you. I'll never forsake you. In Matthew 26, 33, Peter said this, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet I will never be offended. Now, the other disciples failed too, but they were at least smart enough not to demand and, and uh, to Jesus that they wouldn't. They were at least smart enough not to make promises like he did, because this is essentially what he's saying in that verse. Jesus, I've been hanging out with these 11 jokers here. And I've been spending a lot of time with them. And let me assure you, I love you more than these guys do. I am more dedicated to you than these guys are. I love you more than these. And we know what happened. Not once, not twice, but three times, Peter failed and fervently denied Jesus. It wasn't just a mistake. A mistake happens once. This happened three times. Jesus had told him he would do so before the rooster crowed twice. And I got another freebie, but it's really good. I want to hand, uh, just, just to take a little diversion. I always was told in college, don't go down rabbit trails. There's not much meat on rabbits. But there's a little meat here that I want you to see because this is so good. You, you remember the, <coughs> the story of Peter and the rooster, uh, that episode in the Bible. Jesus told Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. Now, in Mark 7, uh, 14, 72, the Bible says this. This was after Peter had denied three times. And Peter called to mind the word that Jesus said unto him, Before the cock crowed twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. When he thought thereon, he wept. Now, this is a question I had. A couple years ago, I was reading through this, and I started thinking along this line. Why twice? Why twice? That doesn't make sense to me. If you're going to say this or use that in as an analogy or a basically a time stamp, then I would think it'd be perfectly natural to say, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. But he didn't say that. He said, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me. Do you find that interesting? I find that fascinating. Because it just doesn't flow like the thought would, before the rooster crows in the morning, you're going to deny me thrice. Twice specifically. Now, it's very instructive if you dig in a little bit there and understand this is a picture of God's grace. Because I can't imagine how Peter ignored the first crow. You ever thought about that? The Bible tells us that when he denied the first time, that he went out on the porch and the rooster crowed the first time. Now, Jesus had graciously given Peter ample warning in that first crow. Not only did he warn him, you're going to deny me, but he throws an additional one in there that maybe if he starts to deny me and, and that first crow, the rooster crows, and you know how loud and, uh, and obnoxious they are, especially when you're trying to sleep. And that rooster crows, and Peter didn't hear it. 
At least, well, he had to have heard it. It just didn't register in his mind. The first crow said, stop, Peter. Stop what you're doing. The first crow said, hey, warning, warning. Remember those big red flashing lights were in front of him. Stop the direction you're going now. But Peter, like so much of us, was more concerned about himself. He was much more concerned about his own desires and his own way. And so he plowed on and he ignored the warnings. Can I tell you, friend, that God is still giving us those first crow warnings out of Scripture today. He gives them in His Word. He gives them through the preaching of His Word. And He allows you to receive them in multitudes of ways. But can I tell you and beg you today, don't ignore the warnings that God sends our way. Peter did. That's why I believe there was two crows of that rooster. He allowed him one more chance, lovingly, gracefully, to stop going down the path he was going and he refused to listen. But anyway, back to our story. So here is Peter, <coughs> after all this, he's at the lowest point of his life. The Bible says he wept bitterly, and I have to think he's been weeping bitterly probably all weekend. So here they are after the catch, and they realize it's Jesus, and oh, what a picture that Peter presents. He essentially had quit the ministry. He, was, uh, he sees himself as a total failure, as we can understand. And now he plunges into the water. He thrashes through the water to get to Jesus as fast as he could, desperate to get to him. I, I was thinking about this today as I was picturing the story. Uh, the disciples, they got all this. They, they say they couldn't hardly pull him up. And then John's like, that's Jesus. And Peter just leaves. And uh, hey, and he jumps out of the water and he's thrashing out to Jesus and the rest of the disciples are like, yeah, okay, we'll just get these ourselves then. You know, they, he just left them to their own desires there because he had one thing on his mind. They all came to shore. There's a meal waiting for them there that Jesus had prepared. And then Jesus says those words we just sang a few minutes ago, come and dine. Come and dine, the master calleth, come and dine. You may feast at Jesus' table all the time, he who fed the multitude turned the water into wine. To the hungry calleth now, come and dine. So they ate together for the third time after the resurrection. But imagine the emotions that was going through their minds. I have to think this was probably a quiet meal. And after a few minutes, Jesus focuses on Peter and asks the question, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? more than these? Whew, what a question. Jesus is giving him a piercing reminder of what Peter had said when he said, everyone else will fail you. Everyone else will run. I, I, but you, you mean more to me than all these other people you do to them. I love you more than they do. I'll be more faithful than they are. Now Jesus asked the question, do you love me more than these? Now, Jesus doesn't leave it there. He asks him three times, Simon, lovest thou me? He uses <coughs> Peter's name every time. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus has already renamed Peter. Remember that? He's not Simon anymore. He's Peter. He, and that was in Matthew 16. He renamed him and said, upon this rock will I build my church, not on Peter, but on himself, and Peter would be a help along the way. But now he's reverting back to Simon son of Jonas. This was his, who he was. He was not listening to his 
Peter, re, uh, the, new, the new nature, he was listening to the old himself when he denied Jesus. So Jesus essentially says, I know who you are, Simon. Do you? Do you love me? Three, three denials, three questions. Asked him, do you love me? So, uh, Jesus wants Peter to see himself for what he really is. Jesus wants the same thing from all of us. And we might look at that and say, man, Jesus is twisting the knife, isn't he? Yes, but it's the knife of a surgeon, not the knife of an attacker. He's trying to teach Peter a lesson. And Peter is learning because he, start, he answers each question, Lord, you know I love you. This is no longer about what I say. This is about what you know. If anything had been driven home into Peter's heart and soul, it was that God knows him better than he knows himself. He says, Lord, thou knowest I love you. And, uh, and every time Jesus says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, take care of my flock. The word feed here, poimaino, uh, it means to feed to rule, to govern. You know what Jesus is saying here? This is an incredible affirmation of Peter. It's like every time Jesus says, I see the brokenness you are. I know how defeated you are. I know what a failure you are. And the minute that Peter opens up just a little bit and uh, is honest about who he is, Jesus lets him know, I still have a purpose for you. I will still use you. I still have a place for you in the ministry. Jesus says, you failed me. Peter says, I know. And Jesus says, okay, you're going to be a leader. It's good stuff, isn't it? Uh, there are seven disciples here. And Peter is the most broken. He's the one that's most out of touch with who he really is. His failure was the greatest. And yet Jesus says, despite all that, you're going to be a leader. And I'm going to use you. You know what Jesus is saying? And mercy, mercy, this is good. Plunge your failure into my grace and I'll make you greater than you ever were before. Your failure, friend, let me tell you today, your failure paired with his grace will let you accomplish more in your life than you'd have ever dreamed. You'll be a better Christian, a leader even. Last week we saw the woman at at Simon's for the supper at Simon's house, the, uh, the Pharisee. And you remember the story about how uh, she, was a, she was a harlot and she felt so horrible about her sin. And, and Jesus said this to Simon, her sins which were many are forgiven for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Can I tell you today, friend, that the more you see your brokenness, the more healing you will experience. The more you plunge yourself into His grace, the more grace you'll have for others who need the same thing. The more honest you are about yourself, the less you'll allow your failures to handicap you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. There's something interesting about that. If you feed an animal, you get something out of it. You ever notice that? If you feed a cat, they stick around. That's why you should never feed a cat, amen? Because they don't leave if you start feeding them. And so uh, I, have a, I have a little buddy, a little Boston Terrier at home named Leo. And uh, he looks forward to my coming home every day because he, uh, wherever I, I have treats strategically placed through the house, one of them is on my bedroom dresser. And whenever I go to the bedroom, he's behind me. He's quiet. So sometimes I don't see him. I'm doing something there, and I look down. There he is, just waiting and just looking. And uh, he's eagerly 
waiting for uh, his treat. And of course, I give him a treat. My wife told me the other day, he just follows you around because you have treats for him. You feed him. And that's true. I know that. It's the same for teenagers, though. Amen. But uh, when you, when, he gives me something. He gives me appreciation. He gives me love and gives me eagerness that I'm home. You feed a dog, you get something. You feed a horse, they follow you around. I remember I had horses my whole time growing up. And, and man, if, you're, if they know you're the one with carrots in your pocket or you're the one with apple pieces, they'll follow you around. You get something when you feed an animal. But what I'm told is that feeding a lamb, you get nothing out of it. There's no reciprocation. Feed my lambs here really means love and care for people, even if you get no benefit. You're, you're, they're getting something out of it, but you're getting nothing out of it. In other words, make an impact with no expectation. Now, how can you be that kind of shepherd? How can you be that kind of loving and patient person? You will not be if you're filled with your own self if you focus on your own superiority like Peter did before his failure, it'll only happen when you see yourself and your failure plunged into the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, so we can be reconciled with others, we also need to be reconciled with the reality of our own weakness, but it gets even better. We see that we can be reconciled to God. The last thing that Jesus says to Peter is somewhat cryptic. We didn't read it. Let's read it now, verse 18. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest, but when thou art, shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth, stretch forth thine hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. Peter, uh, or Jesus is telling Peter here how he's going to make an impact. He's going to give him a shepherd's heart, the kind of heart that is willing to pour itself out for other people, so much so that he would even be willing to die for other people. Peter was going to live the rest of his life patterned after Jesus Christ. Jesus showed his love for us, and he did it by stretching his arms out and dying for us. And now he tells Peter, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands. On the cross, Jesus became our ultimate shepherd. He gave himself for us with no reciprocation. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How much more vulnerable can you be than to have your arms nailed open the way that Jesus did? He did that for you and me, and this should humble us immensely, friend. Jesus, the great shepherd, treated us like the little lambs like that. So we should never look at other little lambs that we encounter the same way again. He loves us. We're accepted in Him. This should equip us with grace for whoever we come in contact with. We should never look down on other people because we, we're just a sinner saved by grace. We're just a recipient of God's grace, and that makes me no better than anyone else. In other words, Jesus says, as I had my hands and arms open for you. Now you'll have your arms open to other people. You'll literally die for your sheep the way that I died for mine. You're going to die for your ministry like I died for mine. And history tells us that's exactly what happened. Tertullian was an early Christian author, and he said that when Peter was to be crucified under Nero in AD 65, they informed him that he would be crucified, and Peter said, please crucify me upside down. I am not worthy to be crucified like my Savior. Now, uh, we see here that like the 
miracle in Luke 5, you see a lot of similarities, but there's one big difference between these two miracles, and it's actually quite striking. Uh, Peter responds in a totally opposite way. The first time when Jesus came in the very beginning, uh, he did that miracle and they uh, were, pulled all those fish in and the net broke and they got those. And once they had everything gathered, the boat started to sink. They brought it into land and Peter was so overwhelmed. The Bible says that he fell on his knees before Christ and he said, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. Now, stay with me here. That's the old Peter. That's the old nature. We don't like to see our flaws. We don't like to see ourselves for what we really are. Our whole self-image is based on us being a good person, based on our reputation with others. When we, listen now, when we get into the presence of someone that shows us to be flawed, our first response is, get out of here. I don't want to be around you. But in John 21, everything's changed. In John 21, he's like a crazy man. When uh, he, he hears it's Jesus, he jumps out of the boat. He wants to get as close to Jesus as he possibly can, as fast as he can. Isn't that something? Same problem, same miracle, same response, same outcome, totally, totally different reactions. Why? Because he's been reconstructed by grace. See, if, when we come to Christ and we understand what He does for us through His grace, uh, we understand that failure is not the end all. Just because we failed in our life doesn't mean that it's over like Peter did. He failed big. You know what Jesus said, or the angel said about Jesus when He was raised? Go tell my disciples and Peter. Remember those two wonderful words in Scripture? I'm not done with Him. I know He failed me, but I'm not done with Him. Oh, what a blessing that is for us. For us who failed, what one of us can't point at failures? You say, I don't have to go that far back. It was this week. Probably the same is true for all of us. Sure, we failed God, but that's not the end all. See, God's grace shows us that failure is an event. It's never a person. Can I say that again? Failure is an event. It's something that happens. A failure is not a person. We need to get over it. We need to get beyond it. Uh, so here, we understand uh, and see in Peter that he was uh, totally different now. He had plunged his failure into God's grace. Listen, you become a wiser person, a more loving person, a more effective person. You get a shepherd's heart when you do that, when you allow his grace to overcome your failures, and you'll make an impact. Would you do the same today? Would you fly to him the way Peter did at the lowest moment in his life. Oh, I can't imagine the depth of his despair, what he had done to the one he loved so much. But Peter did not let those obstacles stop him. The fact that the boat hadn't come into the shore yet didn't stop him. He jumps out into the water. Listen, are you struggling today with personal failure? The answer, friend, is not to run from him. It is to run to him. That's the difference between carnal thinking and spiritual thinking. In closing, I want you to see something else here that's almost humorous. After Jesus tells him how he's going to die, look at verse 20. Then Peter, turning about, see the disciple whom Jesus loved, following which was also leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? That's just identifying John. Verse 21, Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what shall this man do? In other words, <laughs> Peter, 
You're going to be killed. You're going to die. Peter says, okay. What about him? Isn't that one of the most human things in the world? Seriously? I mean, we hear, oh, you're going to suffer. You're going to go through hard times. What about him? If I got to suffer, what about him? And <laughs> what does Jesus say? Now, it's in the Greek. You have to dig a little bit. But Jesus says, none of your beeswax. That's what Jesus says in Greek. Here's how he words it here. If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? None of your business. Follow thou me. Peter, what he's saying is, Peter, for the last time, Peter, stop comparing yourselves to others. Stop, stop measuring yourself by other people. That's all that Peter had been doing his whole life. Look to me, he said. Follow me. And oh, friends, it is the route to failure in our life when we constantly compare ourselves to others and, and use others to gauge our spirituality, use others to even gauge our failures. Sometimes we come to church and say, oh man, they've got life figured out. Everything's going great for them, and I'm a mess. Guess what? They're not as figured out as you think they are. And everybody, we all have bumps in the road. We all have messes that we deal with. Can I just tell you, stop looking at others. Uh, Jesus said, I have a plan for him. And you don't know it, and you don't need to know it. Stop looking at him. Look at me. Follow me, he said. Oh, what a blessing. What is that to thee? Follow thou me. Maybe you're here today, dear friend, and you have failed the Lord. Maybe you haven't been honest about it. Oh, it's easy to talk about it. Uh, talk big in front of others and present ourselves a certain way, but maybe in the quietness of your alone time, you've cried some bitter tears. Maybe you are fresh off of failure. Maybe you feel like God has nothing for you. Can I tell you, friend, you're wrong. Just get to Him. Oh, be honest with who you are. Be honest with your failures. Be honest with who He is. Can I tell you, we are just as dishonest about who He is that we are about who we are. Because we look at Jesus Christ and say, He can't forgive me. Yes, He can. Oh, I could never overcome what's in my life. Oh, yes, you can with His help. Don't misjudge yourself and certainly don't misjudge Him. He is able. He is able. Oh, I want to encourage you today. He heals the brokenhearted. He restores the failures in your life. He'll do more with you than you can imagine if you plunge your failures into His grace. Peter shows us that in this supper, this breakfast. He shows us that no matter how bad he failed, he just needed to get honest with himself. Because as long as he misjudged himself, that was a handicap for him to get where he needed to be. I think maybe there's somebody in here today that needs to do exactly that. And Peter shows us how. Could I have every head bowed and every eye closed? Dear friend, if you're here today, I don't know how God has spoken to your heart specifically, but can I encourage you to respond? Respond. And the basis of our responding to God is always, always honesty about ourselves. Let's do that this morning. Would you stand along with me as she begins to play?